Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Hi, this is Sarah. Ever since we released this podcast, we've been hearing from people who so appreciate the conversations we're sharing and are wanting something more. I've partnered with one of the loveliest people I know, health coach Erin Vanderkoy, and we will be facilitating a retreat at the Oregon coast called Pause, Breathe, Restore. If you're interested in exploring your grief in a safe, caring, and beautiful environment, please check out pausebreatherestore.com or visit the show notes for this episode. We'd love to have you join us. Gratitude and Greatness explores living with grief, the gratitude that sustains us, and the greatness we share when we support others. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. As a writer and someone who has experienced loss herself, Jamie recognized an opportunity to create a new business. She writes interesting, compelling obituaries that more fully memorialize deceased individuals. I talk with Jamie about her essays, her interesting childhood, and the similarities between grief and mental illness. I got to read a piece in the New York Times that you did about photos. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Saving the Images of a Perfect Childhood. And deleting all the rest. <laughs> and I really, I really loved that piece a lot because, especially in this day and age of social media, mm-hmm. um, it does seem like everyone's putting forth their, their best mm-hmm. pictures. I even read the comments. <laughs> and someone actually did comment and said, um, You know, social media causes us to be advertisements for an ideal version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Is that what you had in mind when you were when you were writing that? When I'm on Facebook, you know, I have all these wonky photos from my childhood in a box, and my kids won't have that. They'll have these this very curated version. Or you know, if they can get on the hard drive of some old Mac, they'll find all the photos if they haven't been deleted. Yeah, and it's just a much different experience. And even when I'm on Facebook, I'm posting the smiliest, cutest pictures. That that would be kind of a cool New Year's resolution. Just post the the tantrums and the messes and the meltdowns and yeah, but nobody does that. We do that where we automatically clear out all those photos just so they're not taking up space. When you go back to your photos from childhood, those are the most interesting ones. Yeah. Somebody's not looking at the camera. Somebody has a weird look on their face. You've never seen on their face before, but the camera captured it. Yeah. Those are cool. And I think that's what I, that's what I love about memoir. For some reason, I'm able to do that with words. It's just a deepening. It's a way of sitting with yourself. I don't have the impulse to delete those words the way I would a picture. I think it's almost like a therapy for me. But then sometimes you get something on the page and you just know it's good and that people might relate to it. Yeah. 
I think there are so many parallels between what I went through with mental illness and what somebody with grief is going through. And I work with a lot of people who are going through grief, and I think the world kind of tells you to buck up. You know, you've got a little time, but when you're going through a deep depression, you you just have to feel it. If you want to sit and stare at the fire for months and months and months, that's okay. Yeah, definitely. And if you're going through grief and you just want to watch Great British Baking Show on repeat for a year, you know, that's okay. Everybody wants to cheer you up. Everybody wants you to go do something fun or, you know, I feel like you just have to sit through it. I think that we have this need to do something. Mm -hmm. It's hard just to sit with someone and to say, I love you. Yeah. But that's that's really ultimately the best thing, right? That you can do when somebody's feeling that way. Yeah. Uh, Just tell me what, you know, you don't have to talk. We don't have to talk. I've heard that from so many people who've said that's what they wish for when they're Mm -hmm. grieving. Mm -hmm. Not to be alone, but Mm -hmm. not to be forced into conversation Mm -hmm. or forced to feel better or forced to smile Mm -hmm. or forced to eat Mm -hmm. or forced to this. Right. They want to feed you. (laughs) I read your piece in the Oregon Humanities. You have a couple pieces. Mm -hmm. There was one where you were comparing your mom's experience. The subtitle, at least, is Parenting Through the Fog of Mental Illness. Uh And um, my mom was mentally ill. I wouldn't have said that growing up. I think she was dealing with a lot, and I think she hid it. She, you know, she ran a business. She was a seroptimist. She was, like, uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce. A lot of people didn't know, and we would just say she was sick I think she was dealing with a pretty deep depression and also a lot of physical ailments, debilitating canker sores. She would be in a lot of pain, and there often weren't answers. You know, we would just say mom was sick or, you know, she would need to go to bed early. She would wake up at like four in the morning, not able to go back to bed. Are you an only child? I am an only child. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I was her caretaker a lot of the time. Yeah, I read that. It was something I read where I think you got in trouble and you had your car taken away, but your mom needed you to do something, so she gave you her car. But that was great because it was a much nicer car. Exactly. (laughs) So I just drove her car. I couldn't drive my car. And I actually can't remember getting in trouble that much. I was a, you know, I think I had to be on my best behavior because mom was was sick. We had a very close relationship. And she she would say to me, I would never say this to my daughters, but I, I know where it came from. She would say, you're my best friend. You know, my first years away from home, we talked on the phone every day. So we had a very close relationship. Did you feel like she was your best friend? At the time, I might have said yes. Uh-huh. And then later I thought, I don't I think that that's a little. At what point was, did you realize that that is not maybe the healthiest dynamic? Yeah, yeah probably in my, probably my early 20s. Yeah. Yeah, in college. So if you were there for your mom, you were her best friend, who was there for you? Who was your support system? I had friends, you know, some good friends. I think especially as an only child, I was pretty independent. I thought that I had this normal childhood, and it's only now that I'm a parent that I'm like, oh, oh, right. I didn't get reprimanded or... There are huge gaps in, you know, knowledge, just things that I didn't learn. 
I've talked to a lot of people who've had difficult childhoods, and I'm one mm-hmm. myself. We just don't have anything to compare it to. Right. So we all think we're living a normal childhood. Right. I mean, yeah. at some point we get to a place where we're like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. And I have to say, I had, you know, a strong relationship with my dad. I'm a real daddy's girl. And my dad, yeah. I, a real strong relationship with nature. Like he would take me hiking. He would take me to the beach. We had, a, we went water skiing in the short amount of time. The, the summers, is, you know, Pacific Northwest summer. But uh-huh. we would go water skiing. We, But he bought a sailboat um, when I was in college and was, took a sailing class. So we would sail together. And do you still get was, to do stuff like that with your dad? Not as much, no. Um, but I do see him. I just saw him over Christmas. And we have a very special relationship um but i think my dad he just didn't know i was a a girl and he's not he's not a big emoter so yeah we didn't have a he he would be there for me but and he built me a playhouse i think he knew i needed this kind of space he built me up my dad's an electrical contractor he built me a playhouse with electricity rad yeah it was very yeah how cool very cool so I have to say that about my dad. And, my, you know, I always felt so loved by my parents. So tell me, what were some of the things that you most enjoyed doing with your mom? My mom was a big shopper. Uh-huh. And I'm a big shopper. Not that I have a lot of extra money. I like thrift store shopping. And we lived in a really small town that was isolated. and But her doctor was in Seattle. So we would have to drive four and a half hours to Seattle. And she loved Nordstrom. She loved the malls. When I got old enough to drive, I would drive her to her doctor's appointments. And what I remember from those trips... Four and a half hours? Yes. When you were only, like, 16. Yeah. But inevitably, my parents loved nice cars. So we'd be driving, like, this sports car, and we would be on these hills. I'd be 16. We'd be, like, working the emergency brake together. Now, when I think <laughs> about doing that with my daughters, it scares the heck out of me, but... <laughs> Um, so I just remember the kind of exhilaration of being in the big city. I remember the waiting rooms of my mom's, especially one doctor, who she saw quite a bit. Yeah, I remember the staying in hotels, going and splurging on a whole new outfit. My mom loved, like, romantic comedy. She loved comfort. She loved talk shows. She loved going for walks with her friends. She loved going for walks. So simultaneously, you were experiencing with your mom her going for therapy, but also for her having, you kind of describe retail therapy, but not just retail therapy. I mean, you're going to the big city, you're having this fun experience with your mom. But the backdrop of it is that she's really there for healing. But I wonder how much of that healing wasn't just going to see the doctor, was getting this one-on-one time with you, getting to do all this fun stuff. My mom had such a big, joyful, sometimes wacky personality. I've been diagnosed as being bipolar. Looking back on some of those times, I don't know, you know, was she a little bit manic sometimes when we're like spending all this money? Or is that, was that just her part of her personality? Looking back, it's really hard to know sometimes what was what. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Do you find yourself having things click now when you're like, oh, yes, that's what that was? Yeah. yeah so, sometimes. So many years later. Especially having gone through pretty deep depressions myself, I, think, oh my God, how did she even get off the couch? I think in that essay you were describing, there was a feeling that I feel when I'm depressed that it's like a headband 
around my head. I've never read it anywhere until um, when I was probably, I think, eight or nine. My mom traveled to Boston to have a surgery where they they tried to use lasers to kill the part of her brain that was making her depressed. And oh my god! Anyway, there was a family friend who worked, for, I think, for the Seattle Times, and she wrote an article about mom's recovery. And at the time, it was a big success story. And but she wrote this article, and there was mom describing the band around her head. Like, oh my god, she had that. I have that. And what do you do for yourself when you have that headband on? Having some memories of my mom, my mom would spend a lot of time on the couch or just, I remember her in front of the stereo just with, you know, like Carly Simon or Carol King blasting. And I think the most recent time when I was depressed and I had toddlers, I had those memories and I, I didn't want to do that. Right. And so I kind of forced myself to go to work and try to be a good mom. It was just like being a robot. Yeah. This is such a fog. It is, and it's so much like grief. Just being unable to really be present. It's an inability to really focus. Even smiling is an effort. It's almost like webs, like cobwebs. You can't see your way out of it. Mm -hmm. What you just said about trying not to do what your mom did, mm -hmm. it really resonates with me. I grew up with a mom who may have been bipolar. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I, too, have memories of her really being excited about things mm -hmm. and having really lots of fun with her. And I just, that's the woman I think of as my mom. She also, I remember her being really passionately angry mm -hmm. <laughs> as well. And sometimes I'll have a memory of something about her that's something that... As a child, it could have been just put in a file with a big C for confusion. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't mm -hmm. understand what that was. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and yeah. then as an adult, sometimes I get it now. Mm -hmm. And when my mom passed, I was 10 years old. And whenever somebody said something to me like, oh, my gosh, that reminds me of your mom mm -hmm. or something about me would remind. I had always made me feel so good. Mm -hmm. And I just idolized her. Mm. I mean, she was a woman who spoke seven languages. She was a self-taught draftswoman. Mm. She loved the arts. Mm. She was an amazing cook. She was an amazing seamstress. Mm -hmm. Anything that I did that made me like her felt so good. Mm. And then as an adult, you know, I learned the big file with the C started opening up for me and mm -hmm. I started understanding those moments that she wasn't healthy. It all started to twist for me. If I started recognizing things in myself mm -hmm. that were like her, I started getting scared, I guess. Mm -hmm. No, I don't want to be like her, mm -hmm. like that. Right. For me, I actually experienced grief over the change of my feelings for being like my mom. Mm, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because yeah. I so wanted to be like her. Right. And then when I recognized, started recognizing all mm. these things, I started to grieve over not embracing being like her. Yeah, which is interesting because you're also, it sounds like for a time you really idealized and romanticized your mom. And then you're seeing more of the whole person, mm -hmm. which is actually a good thing for our memories to remember the whole people. Yeah. And yet at the same time, for you, that was a little scary. Definitely. 
And that kind of circles back to what we started talking about with the photos. Mm -hmm. (gasps) Seeing all the photos, not just the perfect ones. Yeah. And that's sometimes when I help people write obituaries, that one of the hardest things I've found is, especially being somebody who loves a great portrait of a person, a great written portrait. Yeah. Well... What's going to make that great is writing about the person's complexities and imperfections. And so when I'm working with a family who's lost a loved one, I try to ask about, you know, what were her contradictions or what were some of her quirks or what, you know, let's talk about her imperfections. People don't want to talk about that. Why do you think that is? I don't know if they just can't see it in an obituary because an obituary as we think of them just doesn't offer that kind of complexity or if they just don't want to go there. I was just reading a really great essay by a comedian named Joe Firestone. It was in the New York Times last week about grief. And she was talking about how important it is to remember the whole person. It seems so obvious to me, and yet it's something that needs to be said. Otherwise, you're you have this kind of rosy, idealized picture and you're not honoring all the memories. Right. You know, it's so funny, but our strengths are born from our flaws, right? Right. So it's so funny that we kind of put ourselves out there like plastic Barbies. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you read a lot of obituaries, and they're very boring. Maybe it's the culture. People don't want to do that. Over time, Jamie has reconsidered the possibilities of what an obituary can be. It began with her first experience of writing an obituary, her mother's. This was nine years ago. I was pregnant. I didn't learn it till later, but my mom killed herself. For a time, the obituary was online on my obituary writing website, and I am a fan of transparency in how the person died. I think that's an important part of the obituary. And somebody said, well, why didn't you, why weren't you honest how your mom died? I didn't know that. My dad wanted to, I think, wanted to protect me. Yeah, me too. Um, My dad didn't tell me about my mom. I actually asked him about it as an adult, Mm -hmm. and he still couldn't bring himself to talk about it. So you were pregnant when your mom passed, and you wrote her obituary. She had been pretty ill for a while, and I don't know why. I have tremendous—I still have tremendous regret and guilt over the ways that I didn't help her before she died. I had actually cut off contact with her. Um, because I just wanted to protect myself and being pregnant, and it was a rough time. Yeah. And so when she died, I just felt a, a real stew of regret and guilt and relief. Yeah. I almost couldn't even look at it because I was pregnant and I wanted to protect that. I don't think I grieved for a little while. I think I, I held back. And then I think I broke down. I think I had a kind of a psychotic break because I hadn't allowed myself to grieve. I just couldn't do it. But you had a new baby. And I had a new baby, and I just wanted to protect that. My daughter was at home birth. My dad happened to be visiting. And there was, there was, it was two months after mom died. And it was was a really beautiful experience. And I want to say healing, but I, I don't think I was ready to heal. Yeah took me a long time to recover. I went into a pretty deep depression and had some paranoia and went to a pretty dark place. 
and wouldn't take, I wouldn't take meds because I had remembered the meds that my mom had taken and it felt that they had changed her whole being, everything, her hair, her smile, her everything. I just didn't want to. And I see now that I, I could probably could have been helped a lot quicker. Yeah. It took me a, a long time and I can't even pinpoint what helped. The beautiful family, my children, my husband, a lot of friend support, community. You wrote your mom's obituary. Mm-hmm. From that, you were compelled to write others. Yeah, and that took a while. Um, I just, in that moment, and now when I read the obituary, it's fine, but it reads a little stiff to me. I mean, it had to be done in, you know, three days after she died when you're planning a memorial and you're you're just stunned. It's just an awful time to try to be eloquent. You know, I really believe in an obituary should reflect the person, and I don't think my mom's was special enough. I think it was fine. At some point, I recognized that, that I could help people yeah. with being a writer and really enjoying writing portraits of people, that I, that I could help people write their obituaries in that hard time. I don't think I've ever done work that I've enjoyed more. It's hard, beautiful work. So what do you do to write someone's obituary? What's your process? Once they contact me, I send them some questions, some really easy, the easy ones, and then the harder questions for them to think about. Most of the obits I've written have been from people who don't live near me, so they're phone conversations with loved ones. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're a call with three people at once, and sometimes there are three separate calls. And uh-huh. I've found that the more people I can talk to, obviously, the richer the portrait. So I always yeah. you know, try to talk to as many people as I can. You know, I just love asking, what did everybody love about this person? That's my, that's my favorite question to ask. Because it really kind of elevates the conversation away from employment and hobbies and right. gets it. You know, well, maybe she, you know, left pots of jam on people's porches every August. Or maybe she had the best handwriting and would give you recipe cards if you complimented a meal. Or, yeah. You know, things like that. I love that. I was reading something recently about how, you know, there's three ways we look at people. We look at what they have, mm. what they do. And those are like the top one and two things that we look at. What do you do for a living? Or, ooh, what kind of car do they drive? Right? And in our culture, humans are really focused on those things. You know, what kind of house they're going to live in, mm. what kind of job they're going to have. But probably the most important thing is inherent in our name. We're human beings, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about how we be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. How we are, what yeah. what, it, what that is. That is really hung with me. Yeah. And yeah. it sounds like that's exactly that's, what you're talking about. That's how you get to someone's essence. That's You know, I had someone tell me that her grandfather, who's Obit, I was writing, he would take conversations, whatever you were, you know, into at the moment. Maybe you watched a movie or just read a book, and then he would he would go and watch the movie. And then he would want to have a conversation about it or he would give you, you know, a a gift related to something that you were into. I just thought that is so thoughtful. What a beautiful thing to remember. How would you compare a eulogy and an obit? And have you ever done both? There were many people who spoke at my mom's memorial. My mom's memorial was, was packed. There were probably 500 people there. And I stood up and talked. And that, that to me... When I look back, I have that written down. 
is much more special than the obit that I had written. More personal, almost like a, a memoir piece about mom. I think you you just have more, they're longer, I think, with obits. Since you're often paying by the word, they have to be a little shorter. Mm-hmm. And they have to get in all the resume stuff. So there are more requirements for an obituary. Whereas the eulogy, you can you can dig a little deeper. Seems like when someone's death comes up, people want to know two things. How did they die mm-hmm. and how old were they? And then when you want to keep talking about the person, mm-hmm. people get uncomfortable and want to move on to some other mm-hmm. topic. And one thing that I love, you know, you're talking about your mom's service and they were like hundreds, of, I think you said 500 mm-hmm. people there. I actually triggered a memory for me that when my mom passed, my dad, my sister and I were in the first car right behind the hearse, you know. Mm. I was in the back seat, and I turn around, and I'm looking at all the cars. And you know how it is. All the cars have their headlights turned on mm. so that the police officers can keep the procession of cars together. And my dad said, how many cars are there? And I I remember counting, and then I, I lost count. And I said, Dad, there's too many. I can't count. And he said, good. Oh, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, okay, so here is your mom who struggled and had a lot of difficulties. But so many people showed up because yeah. she had some impact in, oh, huge in, impact in their lives. Yeah, huge. And so just a giver. That's it, what my older daughter said once. Gaga, they, she called her Gaga. Gaga's a giver. Just a giver. Well, what kinds of things does she give? My mom was one of those people who loved to um, give gifts. Way more than receive gifts. Uh-huh. And she also just had this love of children. So she would adopt. And my dad, they would adopt. And she, oh gosh, she was like the best grandma you could imagine. She just always wanted grandchildren. And so even before my daughter came along, she had adopted children in the community. Maybe busy parents who just needed a little extra help. Mom would take the kids and watch them, you know, free give them lots of gifts and just kind of be a grandparent, a surrogate grandparent so to many is, children. This is when you were out of when the house. Out of, yeah, when I was out of the house. And I think some part of that was trying to make up for time that was lost when I was younger because she was sick. Yeah. She was a baker, so she would just leave you with a, a Ziploc bag of cookies on your porch. Or I can remember the care packages that she would send me with um, cookies and a li- always sending me just like a little money like here's you know fifty dollars just like here's an envelope with a a sweet card that just says love you jame and fifty dollars uh, randomly you know like right when you need it and she always had that sense and then um there was a time when i went through a depression before she died and she was the person who understood the most yeah um, just sit on my bed and bring me the chocolate truffles that were the only thing that I would eat and oh I think you know she understood and it brought her a lot of pain to see me going through what what she had gone through I bet tell me what you most loved about her her joy her ability to just be in her body and dance and get down and just be silly with kids she loved kids Kind of going back to what I was saying, her empathy, her her deep, deep empathy, her way of of understanding what I was going through. If I was going through a hard time, she would call every day. Uh, She would be there. They lived 
were in Eugene and they lived six hours away and she would be there. Is writing for you, is it sort of your own therapy? I would say so. I mean, I think it's worked more so than any other kind of therapy. Really? Yeah. I've been through some therapy and I think the writing is the most, been the most helpful to me. It's almost like a form of therapy going through the editing process, especially on a piece like the piece I wrote about mental illness, because you have someone that's as invested in the piece as you are. And so they're, they're helping you. They're helping you deepen it and make it richer. And so they're asking you all these questions like, oh, yeah, I can go there. Sure, I can describe that. Sure, I can add on to that paragraph. Absolutely. And, and that's um, it's almost like a form of therapy. So I love that. I love that. Some people don't like the editing process or they want to think once they've written something that they're done. Uh-huh. But I've never felt that way. It's always. And I think I've had the the good fortune of working with some great editors, especially at Oregon Humanities, who've always made the pieces better. And then the publishing process. It's a, it's a little scary putting yourself out there, but the feedback and the connection, I just think that, you know, vulnerability on the page leads to some great connection. Yeah. And revealing that vulnerability has been a positive experience for you. It has, across the board. For better or for worse, I'm kind of a people pleaser. And so putting something out there and getting good feedback just, you know, it feels makes you good. feel good. Yeah, sure. Knowing that people are connecting to it and maybe you're helping them somehow, that's a good feeling. Something I've gone through this pain and now I've put it out there and maybe it's helping someone. Yeah. When you look at your girls right now, and I know they're quite young, do you think, I wonder if they're going to be writers? I, I see that in them. I see the impulse in both of them to write things down and share. And I, I can see it. And I definitely have a baker on my hands. That's awesome. That's kind of cool to see what she creates. And they're both, they're both very creative. I know that for me, when I'm down, spending quality present time with my children is one of the yeah. best medicines there yeah. is. Yeah. What are some of your favorite things to do with your girls? One of our favorite things to do, we live about a mile from downtown Eugene. And so one of our favorite things to do is just to walk downtown together mm-hmm. and go to the library and go to the natural food store and go to, or go to some pretty shop. It's just like the best time because we're walking, the three of us, in a line and they tell me things. And, you know, it's a long enough walk where they just tend to open up a little bit more when we're right. just walking together. And, yeah. And then there's that great destination of the library. That's just my favorite thing to do. And dinners. I feel like one thing I have done as a parent is to hold that container of of routine for my kids. That's been really important. Breakfast and dinners are important, so our times around the dinner table are pretty special. We do like our roses and thorns and stuff oh, yes. of the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. We do that. We do that, too. And I think we call it roses, buds, and thorns. Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> Rose is the, the best thing that happened to you in your day. Yeah. And thorn is, you know, the worst thing that happened to you. And then the stem is a more boring thing. One thing we do, we tell our mundane stories as a family. We tell, like, the most boring thing that happened to you that day, but to try to give it a narrative arc. Uh-huh. And my younger daughter excels at that. It's just, it's a oh, real joy of mine. To that's great. To tell those stories. So is yeah. the bud something you're looking forward well, to? Well, I, yes. Yeah, the bud is something cool. promising on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah something that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So STEM is the... It's kind of like the boring, like the <laughs> mundane thing, which is separate for us from our mundane stories, but it's kind of related. Yeah. 
That's a good one. I'm going to remember that because it seems like when kids come home and you're like, how was your day? It's boring. Right. What did you? I don't remember. Right. There's something. <laughs> it, I can't always get to it right after school, but something about dinner and having the routine of that. And like your walks, I do feel like time with my kids sequestered in the car mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Yeah. But we also do a Sunday hike. Well, we used to. Mm. It's really busy now that as your kids get older, they're involved in all these organized this and that, sports and other activities. It's hard to have a family tradition mm-hmm. like a weekly hike. But how often do you get to go downtown with the oh, girls? We'll do it like once a week. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Jamie surprised me by bringing in a volume of poetry. I'm not a huge poetry fan, but it is something that I've come back to again and again, especially since mom died. I don't know if I should, I don't have to read it. I would love it if you would read it. Would you please? Yeah, I will. It's called What the Living Do, and it's by a poet named Marie Howe. And I think she wrote this in 1998, and it was after her brother died of complications from AIDS. So, Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the Drano won't work but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up. Waiting for the plumber, I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later, when buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call. A letter, a kiss. We want more and more than more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep. For my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat, that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. Hmm. It's beautiful. I think about that line, um, I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep. And I think if that's one thing that I've gotten through grief, is the ability to really experience that joy of life. This could be fleeting, I'm going to enjoy the heck out of this. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grief Gratitude Great. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503 454 6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. 
Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.